You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Tech stocks and the NASDAQ whipsaw into a stunning reversal. U.S. Treasuries continue their march higher on the week. What does the jobs report mean for the economy and the rotation trade? Welcome, Ed. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much. Busy Friday, busy week. Let's jump right in. Ed, what's on your mind? Yeah, you know, a lot to recap for this week. You know, I'm thinking most about the interviews that I've had as well as the market action. Uh, two or three interviews that come to mind. Uh, one from last week, which, which was on RVDB. I spoke to Jim Bianco. I'm thinking a lot about that. Uh, I also had another interview this week on RVDB with um, with Peter Bukvar. And I think that those two were good enough as, a, as individual interviews that I want to put those two together. Hopefully we can get something organized and have me talking to both of them next week. Uh, mm. Also... We had an interview with uh, Leland Miller on China. I'm thinking about that just from a just broader sense. But earlier in the day, I spoke to Andrea Stenner Larson uh, from Nordea, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. So that's what's on my mind. And if you, I could frame it all from a macro perspective, it's about the reflation trade, inflation. It's about currencies and uh, bond markets. That's the generic gist of all of those interviews. Uh, and and what's happening in the markets that I'm thinking about. Yeah, let me read my favorite quote of the day from Ed Harrison's credit write-downs talking exactly about that point, uh, fixed income. Quote, we are now set to consolidate above the 1.5 resistance level that represents the next move up in the stair-step climb of rates for the U.S. 10-year Treasury. If we close above that level today and next Friday, consider the next level of resistance much higher, i.e. 1.75 or 200 basis points. And then you go on to say, and Fed Chair Powell confirmed what I've been telling you about this. The Fed is reactive, not proactive. It won't put in a Fed put until something breaks. So punters can forget about the Fed saving the day until we see some serious market carnage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this. I think this goes into where, where Jack's headed. Uh, when I think about serious market carnage, first and foremost, I'm thinking about credit markets. And, you know, since Jerome Powell is a PE guy, private equity, he's thinking about those credit spreads as well. And so, you know, Jack, he's looking at the credit markets. He's looking at the absolute levels, duration, et cetera. The thing that I'm looking at the most is the fact that credit spreads actually have not come down, that... Uh, even though we're seeing a tightening uh, uh, of credit conditions in general, U.S. investment grade corporate bond spreads have actually narrowed to 92 basis points from 96 basis points at the end of last year. They're down 4.2 percent on a total return basis. That's just because treasuries have gone up, but the spreads themselves have narrowed. If uh, what uh, I say is true, then eventually we should see some spread widening 
and we should see some pain in credit markets. Yeah, you know, just to put an exclamation point under that, um, IG corporate bonds down, LQD, that's the iShares investment grade bond ETF out of BlackRock, of course. Uh, looks like it's down 6.5% uh, since it's deck 31 high. Bank of America out with a note yesterday cutting IG to underweight. Yeah, so Jack, give give us your read on this situation, which I think is uh, different enough from how I'm reading it as well. Yeah, uh, and I, I think both of you uh, make good points. L uh, like you said, Ash, uh, LQD is down. Investment grade, uh, uh, the, the, that ETF is down. TLT down much, much more because it bears the greatest interest rate risk. In other words, it's uh, has the most exposure to when interest rate rises, uh, it will go down the most. Meanwhile, right. you have HYG or uh, the high yield ETF, and we all know that that, that um, has a lot of credit risk. Uh, however, it has relatively uh, a small amount of interest rate risk relative to uh, something like uh, um, LQD or TLT. LQD has a uh, duration, an average duration of about uh, seven years. High, high yield uh, generally has in the U.S. has a duration half that. So uh, the average time at which the bonds end and they are paid back is much, much shorter than something like LQD. Uh, meanwhile, TLT, as you both know, that's full of, uh, corp of excuse me, of treasury bonds that have a maturity longer uh, than 20 years out. So with TLT, you have uh, a lot of uh, um, interest rate risk but no credit rate risk. And I'm just looking at the high yield bond market now, and I'm seeing a lot of players come to the market who haven't come there before. Um, Twilio announced this week that they're going to uh, price a billion dollars worth of bonds. And that's the first time that they visited the junk market. Previously, they've uh, raised capital exclusively through convertible um, bonds. So I think there, there's kind of this sense uh, in, in the world of, of, of um, these technology names, let's say, who say like let's get in on the high yield bonanza while it's still good? So that's my right. general outlook, and that that also plays to um, the, the technology sector, which is absolutely dumping like crazy because uh, interest rates are rising. So right. uh, there's there's a lot there. <laughs> you, you know, let me just add because I know some of our uh, subscribers have pointed out to us that some of the stuff when we get into the weeds uh, on the bond side, on the fixed income side, we sometimes we sometimes gloss over some of these key points. The duration that you're talking about. Uh, in fixed income is the amount of time it takes to pay off the purchase price of the bond from the internal cash flows. It also is a measure uh, of sensitivity uh, in price change relative to interest rate risk. This is a, a critical distinction for understanding the bond market, which you've been uh, so good at covering and bringing out some of these more nuanced points in. Yeah. And also, by the way, I think that's a good uh, explanation. I would go one step further and say that when you're talking about duration, you're talking about the average uh, payment length. That is, is that if you think about a, a bond as a coupon payment over a period of time and then a balloon payment at the end, you take all of those those flows and then come out with the, you know, the average uh, of when you get half of your money back. That's the, the duration of the bond. So if bond uh, rates go down, uh, let's say they go down towards 0%, then the duration goes up towards almost the exact uh, tail end of when you get the balloon payment. A zero coupon bonds duration is actually co-exist, uh, co you know, it's uh, coincident with the duration of the bond. Right. But as interest rates go up, uh, much more of the bond 
is uh, is in the front of of the bot in terms of the coupon payments that you're getting up front. Right, and higher coupon rates, all else being equal, lower duration because you get higher cash flows coming in, longer date to maturity remaining, uh, also higher. Yeah, so I mean, you know, if you're a bond investor, everyone's talking about duration. You know, you duration matching is is what where it's at. You know, we're talking about insurance companies. We're talking about uh, also life life insurance companies and pension uh, plans. They want to match uh, assets and liabilities. So right. the higher the yields go, the shorter the duration of the assets uh, they're buying. And so ultimately, you know, in some ways, actually, it puts pressure at the long end in the market for you to want more duration because you're not getting that. Um, yeah. And so there are a lot of different dynamics that are at play in the bond market. So it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And of course, that makes sense. If you think about what a pension fund does, you have liabilities in terms of outflows that you need to pay out uh, and you're trying to match them uh, with income that you're generating from your fixed income portfolio. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think where Jack is, is he's talking about a time frame over which we're going to see uh, with this uh, stair step up in terms of rates, we're going to see duration be the thing that matters. So duration matters the most, the long end of the treasury curve, because there's no uh, credit risk there. And that's where the longest durations are. Then you move to uh, LQD and you see uh, that durations are shorter. Uh, and there also is some credit risk associated there. And then more credit risk, but even shorter duration in the, in the junk bond market. So J&K and other uh, yeah. ETFs there. But what I would say is eventually this is going to flip where it's not just going to be about duration. It's going to be much more about credit. So to the degree mm -hmm. that you you're thinking of a different time frame, that's what you should be thinking about. Uh, I spoke to Andreo Stena Larson earlier today, and his view is that, you know, starting in 2022, we will be thinking much more about the downside risk. Actually, already this year, we should be thinking about the downside risk to the degree that the market is forward looking, but the downside risk are going to crystallize by that particular time. So th we're throwing a lot of logs into the fire uh, yeah. to, to you know, goose up the market, goose up GDP growth, but eventually that's going to come unstuck, according to him. And if that's true, then we're going to see that reflected in credit spreads. Yeah, just to highlight one of the fundamental points that you just made there, credit risk has not been part of the of the story uh, because of the Fed uh, extending liquidity and also because of fiscal stimulus. Now, that's why you're seeing those tights uh, on spreads, but that could change, as you point out, as credit risks begin to unwind or grow. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's where I am in, in this whole situation. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Can we uh, t turn, the, turn the story a little bit to uh, equities? Because I, I think that you had some pretty intense price action today. Um, Tesla sold off, all, all the growth stocks sold off tremendously like they have been this week. Again, of course, that's related to rising rates because uh, uh, tech stocks have essentially a, a very long duration as well. They're, they're growth stocks. Um, but then we had a little bit of a Volta 
uh, within the day. And uh, somewhere around 11.30, things changed and the market uh, really went up and those growth stocks um, went right with them. And I'm looking uh, at a chart now of uh, Tesla and the ARK ETF, which owns um, a lot of Tesla shares. In fact, it comprises uh, a great deal of, of their net asset value. Yeah. And they absolutely fit like a glove. And I'm also looking at uh, Norwegian cruise liners, which that, that's another thing I want to bring up. You, you think uh, you hear today, oh, my God, it was the tech stocks that stumped because that is the, the narrative that you've been hearing. That's what we've been seeing. However, the top three stocks that were down the most, as, as I uh, took a screenshot about 2.30 p.m., were cruise liners. It was uh, Norwegian cruise liners, Royal Caribbean cruise liners. Um, and... and I think it's because these companies are raising equity. They continue to raise equity because they need cash. And it makes me think of what uh, one of my economics professors said, which is good companies raise debt, bad companies raise equity. Because when you raise equity, you dilute the other share shareholders. And it's not what you want to do. It's basically a reverse stock buyback. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, RCL, NCLH, CCL, American Airlines, uh, Live Nation Entertainment, Basically, all of these uh, reopening stocks, which you think would be uh, booming since we have these extremely high expectations for growth and inflation, uh, right. they, they were dumping. So I think you're seeing the, the fundamentals just leak into the market because, look, if you have to issue more shares to, to get uh, money and secure financing, then that's going to drive down the stock price. Yeah, just some hard data points here. Um, I'm not following the cruise lines as closely as you are, Jack, but I was looking at ARK and Tesla, both of which peaked within about three weeks of each other. Uh, 12 February on ARK, uh, 156. Today, last I saw 115 off, 26.3% from peak. Tesla, Jan 26 peak, 883. Uh, now, last trade, I saw 587 off, 33.5%. So losing a third of its value from peak. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves is the rotation uh, as a result of the reopening over. Is the reopening trade done? This whole reflation trade, and now we have to be thinking about what happens next. I mean, mentally, I'm already moving on to what happens once we get to the reopening. And it sounds to me like the market is digesting it in that favor. I'll give you an example because I spoke to Chris Whalen, uh, I believe it was yesterday, uh, that's an interview that's going to come out next Thursday. We were talking about banks. And if you take a look at the bank ETF, which is uh, XLF, that's uh, up to 33.64 last I checked. You know, that will be a 52-week high for the bank stocks. Uh, I looked at two banks that I look at, which are Fifth Third and Danske Bank, one in the United States, one over in Europe. Both of those hit 52-week highs. I got alerts for those today. To me, that's part and parcel of this whole uh, rotation into the reopening, the same uh, sort of rotation that we're seeing that's affecting the likes of Carnival Cruises and Norwegian and so forth. To me, also, that's overdone now, that mm. the levels, the amount of rotation that we've seen, the uptick in the financials is overplayed. After speaking to Chris, what he's talking about in particular is that you know as we move towards the latter half of the year, what we're going to see is an increasing uh, problem with regard to commercial real estate. So when we think about, okay, so now we've gotten the rotation into the reopening play, what happens next? That's when you start thinking about commercial real estate. That's when you start thinking about what happens when Jack, Ed, and Ash, who used to actually work in the same building together a year ago, are in a position to do so again, are they going to do it? 
you know, and uh, if they aren't going to do it, what does it mean uh, for bank balance sheets? I think that's what we what people are starting to think that a lot of the stuff that is uh, stay at home is going to do better uh, at the margin relative to the old normal, the pre pandemic normal. So right. yeah. I think it's all been priced in. And if you want a chart to take a look at there, we were looking at earlier, uh, XLE priced in XLK. Uh, this is basically energy priced in tech. This is the spider select sector out of State Street. You look at that chart, you can see loses about almost 60% of its value. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's so much to say, Ash, that's such a good point. There's so many metrics that capture these reflation trade. One thing I have my eye on uh, is TLT to SPY or long bonds relative to the S&P 500 or, or the ETF that tracks that. And that likewise, too, it, it pretty much matches the XLE to XLK. People are piling in to uh, risk risk on trades and they're piling out of defensive sectors like tech, like utility, and then the ultimate defensive sector, which is bonds. Um, Ed, it's, I'm so glad that you brought up XLF because if, if I recall, I think that the XLF, I think of it as having a ton of traditional brick and mortar banks. It's very conservative. I think the largest holding is Berkshire Hathaway, something like 11, 12%. It doesn't have your PayPal's. It doesn't have your MasterCard. It's sort of companies that I would place like in between banks and crypto in terms of financial innovation. Um, so because it doesn't have that, the, the stock is continues to do well because it's the PayPal's and, and the sort of growth stocks that are getting pummeled. So I think X, XLF is a perfect encapsulation of your brick and mortar banks that are doing well. The market's not pricing in credit risk. Uh, the market expects rates to continue to rise. That will be phenomenal for banks because they borrow short uh, and lend long. So um, I think the the reopening trade uh, is is dead. And I think you look at you look at um, not just commercial real estate, but you look at the cruise liners. They're literally having to uh, issue shares to survive. Uh, movie theaters, I think, open tomorrow or, or, or very early next week, which you know I'm excited for. I'm, I'm not going to do it for safety reasons, but I, I think it's great. AMC has had to issue a ton of equity uh, in order to uh, survive as well. So these, these reopening stocks, um, you know, they basically have, uh, they have to continue to issue uh, debt and, and and equity to survive. Um, so I, I think we're going to see something interesting going forward with that. Yeah. yeah. And this, this is where the market's pricing it in. Uh, they're saying at the margin, there are going to be changes that are happening. And, you know, let me say that those changes that are happening are actually happening in uh, the, the jobs numbers that we looked at. When I, when I think about it, just from a purely economic perspective, I, I was looking at the last print that we had for non-farm uh, non payrolls, which came out today. Uh, we had a really good number, you know, almost 400,000. When you added in the uh, upward revisions from the previous year, from the previous month, it was uh, above 500,000 jobs. Great. But actually, more than 300,000 of those jobs came from the leisure and hospitality sectors, which are really the toggle at this point in time. Those are the ones that when we lock down, you, you see the massive cuts and then when we open it back up, you see massive gains. If you looked at the other sectors right. of the economy, they're really not growing quite as much. So to me, what we're seeing now is that's the one overlay uh, that we should be thinking of. The second is that underneath it all, it, where you see all those sectors where it's not growing as much, there are massive, massive uh, job layoffs uh, as well as job gains. There's just this this churn as people try to figure out what do they do at, uh, from their business perspective to deal with this new normal. 
Uh, here's a statistic that I don't think enough people talk about. Uh, every single print in the initial jobless claim series since we went into lockdown a year ago has been higher than the highest print that we ever got in all the previous data prints going back to 1967. So mm -hmm. the jobless claim series is a series that goes back to 1967. And if you look at that series, every single number that has come out since we went into lockdown is higher than the highest number of all the previous uh, prints that we had before. That wow. tells you that even a year after we've had all of this uh, carnage, it's still going on. We're still trying to figure out uh, what the new economy looks like. And I think that churning is going to be negative in terms of GDP growth uh, at the margin. So once you remove the government uh, from the picture, the government largesse, uh, you're still going to have uh, some problems. And that's just fascinating. That's really interesting analysis. And that's just a function of that steep first leg down on the V and also obviously of population growth. Uh, but really interesting stuff. Etta. It almost sounds like um, it's effectively what's happening is uh, the services sector jobs are becoming the swing player uh, in this in this particular data series. Now, historically, for those of us who've been following macro for a long time, that was typically in manufacturing sector jobs. But now, uh, because of the lockdown and the impact that we saw uh, from that, it's now about seeing you know who wants to go out and uh, who who needs to staff up those positions in the services sector in order to meet that demand. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, the the primary trend is is that that first tick down the V up and then sort of a rollover, you know, that's the reverse radical recovery that people are talking about. But that rollover is happening sort of in a, a very uh, bumpy way just because we are uh, have a start-stop, uh, lockdown, no lockdown type of economy. But yeah. the trend is definitely not as robust as it was during the initial V. And right. as you say, the, you know, the trigger or the toggle is in the services sector now much more than the manufacturing sector. And that's in part because we're still trying to figure out what the new services economy looks like. I mean, right. if you asked me, I would say the new services economy looks like I wanna stay at home at the margin slightly more than I did before. So if you took 100 people and you polled them and said, what are you gonna do relative to what you did before the pandemic? I would say that you would get a good 10%, you know, 5% of them who would say, I'm going to do less of the things I used to do uh, uh, before and more of the things that I've been doing since the pandemic. So at yeah. the margin, all the businesses that Jack was talking about, uh, those are going to be hit. Uh, and so is that priced in now that we've had the, re the reopening trade or uh, are we going to see another leg down in those, of those shares as we did when they first got hit back in March 2020? Let me just give you the data points uh, for those who aren't following this series as closely as Ed. So it's 379,000 new jobs added in February. January revised up to 166,000. So you see that acceleration there uh, in the rates. As, as Ed pointed out, that's about 550,000 new jobs added year to date in the last two months. But let's take a look at the unemployment rate numbers. Unemployment rate now down to 6.2%. Uh, that's off the pandemic high of 14.8%. Uh, and while that's obviously a significant improvement, more than cut in half, 
It wasn't that long ago, Ed and Jack, where we were celebrating the unemployment rate going below 5%. So this is still an elevated rate. And in addition to that, you also have folks who have left the labor market uh, and are no longer getting counted in that figure. Yeah, uh, I was waiting for Jack to get in there, but I know he thinks that uh, uh, employment's in what my wheelhouse, so it's, it's on me to talk about that. Yeah, I think that the Fed, they're on to that. They know that uh, th those that 6.2% number, that's not a real number that's comparable to the numbers that we had before the pandemic. And so this is one reason that their policy is the way that it is. The real question is, is whether or not they can get away with it. You know, given uh, what's happening elsewhere in terms of inflation, uh, bottlenecks in the supply chains, uh, commodity prices going way up, uh, the market is basically front running the Fed in terms of the need to pull forward their timetable on uh, normalizing interest rates. We'll see who wins that battle. But I think, uh, you know, as I said earlier in the uh, in the conversation, that Jay Powell basically told us that he's just going to wait for breakage before he uh, he submits. He's going to let the bond market do whatever it wants to do. And if it, if it leads to breakage, only then is he going to step in. So uh, you, you got to beware if you if you think that the Fed put is going to save you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point. I'm uh, cracking a smirk because I, I watched uh, uh, Fed Powell's uh, discussion with that Wall Street Journal reporter and the Wall Street Journal said, what, what did you make of rising rates? And uh, what, what Fed Powell said was, it was notable. And I'm like, yeah, I, be I bet you noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but Ed, so you have a, a nuanced perspective you just laid out on why you think the reflation trade could be a little bit overdone. Uh, I just had an interview with Teddy uh, Valley, uh, who thinks rates will continue to rise and that growth could be as high as 12%. Um, so I'm influenced by that. So I have a slightly different view, but I'm not so interested as much in, in ex my view or explaining my view as perhaps exploring the possibility that, Ed, you uh, think that COVID will continue to be a very uh, big deal, that uh, these lasting trends, people will work from home, yada, yada, yada. I, I would say for uh, argument's sake that I think the exact opposite. I think that uh, people are going to rush into the office. People are going to go to all the bars. And, you know, there, there's a picture out of this this advertisement um, where it's talking about the new normal. And it's this man and woman uh, kissing each other in this rather way that shows that they're, you know, they're, they're not being careful. Uh, it's, it's the new normal. Basically saying it's th the summer is here. Like, let, let's go out. So let's say that you're right, Ed. I actually think the S&P is going to be higher if you're right and lower if I'm right. Because I think uh, that these set reflation trades the market cap is just so small. Like I'm looking at the, the S&P 500 energy market cap uh, is now is only 2.7% of the S&P. Its, its bottom in late 2020 was 1.8%. So Apple right now is about two and a half to three times larger than the entire energy sector. So I think if Apple does poorly, um, that's going to drag down the entire market a lot more than uh, the S&P 500. Like, there's, energy can only go so high, no matter how much of a mean reversion, mean reversionist you are. So I think that you can, it's possible to, it's intellectually consistent to be a reflationist and believe in reflation and actually be more bearish than someone who has the worst possible expectations about, about reopening. Well, uh, I am a reflationist. I think that there is going to be pent up demand. I think that, you know, we're seeing a pop already, you know, so when Teddy Valley talks about 12%, 
the Atlanta Fed's GDP now uh, tracker is already tracking at 10%. And this is before reopening for Q1. You know, we already have PIMCO talking about full year 2021 at 7%. And so to the degree that places like Texas and Mississippi are opening up fully already, and then we're all going to be vaccinated fairly shortly, you know, people are going to be partying in the streets to a certain degree. Uh, but I think that the market is uh, it has already discounted that. The market said that that's what's going to happen. Everyone has piled into that trade. They think that's going to happen. And so now we're quickly approaching the point when people are like, okay, we know that's going to happen. What happens next? And and, and that's the, the great unknown. The unknown is, is, is what happens after we get the pop. And we don't even know how long that pop is going to be. Let's say it's three months. Uh, what happens next? Uh, and to my view, that's the where the new normal uh, comes into play. And I believe that new normal is going to be somewhat more weighted toward the pandemic uh, than it. You know, there's a slight move towards the pandemic lifestyle, if you will. Let's mm. say it's 10 percent towards that that lifestyle instead of 100 percent. But the, at the margin, that matters in terms of you know, your mix of companies. And then the, your question is, is that priced in? Uh, that's the same question that I have. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, you know, talking reflation and rotation, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we do know what's happened in the past. NASDAQ 100 down three weeks in a row, erasing $1.6 trillion in market cap from those 100 stocks alone. NASDAQ 100 returned 50% in 2020. Yeah, you know what's interesting, I must say, is the price action as we're speaking. The market is getting towards a close as we're speaking. Uh, you know, the Dow's up 600 points, that's 2%. NASDAQ's up 1.5%. Uh, you know, I think the NASDAQ was down 2% when we were preparing for this earlier in the day. And I'm looking at the, the buys. Tesla just flipped from a neutral to a strong buy on uh, my screen. Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA. Actually, not NVIDIA, but Facebook and Alibaba are all strong buys, and NVIDIA is a buy. So that tells you suddenly, you know, momentum investors, they're just piling into that trade. Um, so this this whole back and forth is not over uh, by any stretch of the, the imagination. I would say that I still believe the toggle is uh, rates, duration, as Jack puts it, because at, at the end of the day, it's the 10-year that is coming down, the five-year coming down, that is the question for the markets. One last thing on this, I was talking to Andreo Steno Larson about this earlier today. Uh, to me, it's the three to five-year rate, uh, the belly of the curve, that's what we're talking about. If you look at overnight rates, three-month rates, uh, two-year rates, they're basically unmoved uh, over the last several months. It's really when you start to get to three and then later to five. That's where you see the massive move. That's where, we, where we're thinking about the duration risk uh, starting to, to play out. And that's where people are starting to uh, talk to the Fed about whether or not the Fed's behind the curve. Mm. 
By the way, talking about risk and not over yet, obviously we've been following the numbers very closely uh, on COVID current hospitalizations down dramatically, daily deaths down dramatically, daily case count down dramatically, but also news in the last 48 hours, France and Japan are locking down further or extending lockdowns that were set to expire. Uh, and Germany has instituted a limit on uh, French travel, even within the Schengen area. So still some things to cards to play out there uh, in this crisis. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, Jack, but yeah, um, the, 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 the light at the end of the tunnels there, it, it's still somewhat unclear how long that tunnel is going to be. Yeah, and yeah. it's a dark tunnel, even though we can see the light at the end of it. It is a dark tunnel. Uh, so, yeah, so, sorry to be Mr. Silent. I, I just have some, uh, most of what I have is, is focused on, on equities and particularly like data on growth companies. So I, I was, uh, did a thread on Twitter, I think it was last night. I was just looking, and it, it wasn't a scientific you know, analysis, but I was just looking at the companies that were down the most. What were their price to sales ratios? And you know, it was companies like Luminar that had a sale, price to sales ratio over 100. A company like Microvision, which, you know, if you're following markets in the, the dot-com bubble, I think that was one of the darlings of the dot-com bubble. Uh, it was, it was, it's LiDAR technology. Um, so what I said my, uh, what I said was that it's, it's been the future of 3D imaging technology, and it has been for 30 years. Um, and that company has a price-to-sales ratio over 200. And then there's the king of price-to-sales multiple, um, which, by the way, price-to-sales multiple is just the market cap uh, relative to the revenue, um, is, is Virgin Galactic. So the market cap is now six billion. It's down over fifty percent from its peak of about fourteen billion uh, when the stock was in the high fifties. So uh, Ed, Ed, and Ash, uh, guess so peak valuation fourteen billion. Guess how much revenue uh, Virgin Galactic had in twenty twenty. Guessing not a lot. A hundred thousand dollars. It beat me to it, but it two hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars. <laughs> so a, a tremendous. Yeah, what, I want to know where they made two hundred and thirty-eight grand. Was it like selling concessions or something? Or where does that come from? Good question. I, I mean, to be fair, their twenty nineteen revenue was in the neighborhood of three point seven million. So obviously, the pandemic uh, impacted them. Uh, I also want to draw attention to so they've had this massive dump uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, notable investor, uh, been called the, the king of spacs. He sold uh, about I think fifteen point eight million shares uh, of of. It actually could have been. Uh, 12 million, but it was a position uh, valued at over $200 million. Um, so him exiting this p position, that says, you know, hey, he's uh, not not thinking so, so hot on the stock anymore. And then- And his uh, position so went to zero, is that right? Uh, that's what's disclosed in the file. You know, he could have something on E-Trade on the side that we don't know about, but yeah, the filing said he's zero. He's completely out of the trade. That's what the file said. Um, I also have a few things to say about SPAC. So Virgin Galactic is, is a SPAC. So I've got some more uh, fun, fun little data. Um, you, you guys ready for this? Yeah, I'm Absolutely. really thinking about Shamath uh, and whether or not, you know, what, what his real position is, because he's taken a lot of stick for uh, being involved in the space in the way that he has and, uh, you know, the K-shaped recovery and all that kind of stuff. So I wonder if this has anything to do with that. Um, yes, he he is a growth investor. I think he's said publicly, you know, I would not own an enterprise stock. I wouldn't own a dollar worth of of a bank stock. Um, he's definitely someone who's fo focused on the the growth, focused on the future. And over the past decade, that's been a rainmaker of a trade. Um, I put him in the same category of Kathy Wood, of uh, you know, kind of kind of a, a vision.
visionary. Um, however, this is this is a very bad time. When rates are rising, you, it's it's bad to be a visionary. You want to be a, an oil uh, oil baron. Um, but okay, so th for SPACs, so roughly there are about uh, 734 SPACs. That's what I found in my Bloomberg terminal. Um, a lot of those are actually SPACs that are you know they've been around for five years and they uh, are now trading at like five dollars or even ten cents on the dollar. Trade for ten cents. And remember, every SPAC starts at ten dollars. So for the, you know, it's kind of the graveyard of SPACs. But let's just take uh, the the stocks that have IP. Uh, excuse me, the SPACs which have IPO'd over the past two years. There are 282 of them. Again, this is what my data says. Since that have IPO'd since March 5th of 2019. Of those 20, 282, um, there were 36 that were trading for less than ten dollars three months ago. So that's less than you know the, the SPAC line is. It can never go less than ten dollars because if they don't consummate a deal, they just give you back ten dollars. But so three months ago, there were 36 out of 282 that were trading for less than a dollar. A week ago, 42 of them were trading uh, below $10. Yesterday, there were 60. Today, there are 64. So uh, the SPAC empire um, is, is kind of crumbling. And if you look at the actual performance um, of the SPAC, so you know, there still are those high flyers, which if you bought at $10, you're up 200, 300, 400%, 500%. Um, but, but those high flyers have taken a cut as well. So I think there's almost no greater space than the, um, than the SPAC that has taken it most uh, on the chin during this reflation uh, rate rise uh, um, timing. You know, Jack, you're saying basically what I was saying. I'm, I'm exactly on your page on, on, on all of that. I'm actually thinking of it also in terms of this is a sign of the of people moving to the next level. It's that the reflation trade has really played itself out. Now the market is thinking about what happens next. What happens after we do the reopening? We The reflation has been baked into the cake. This is yet another sign that that's true. And so I think that the market is now trading on the, the reopening and what comes next after. Yeah. This has been an extraordinarily data-rich Real Vision Daily Briefing, and I think we've run way over time. Uh, Jack, Ed, final thoughts. Hey, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see if this thesis holds out that uh, – we're we're back, we're past this rotation, and we're now moving into the next level. The market is forward looking, and uh, it's saying that uh, okay, let's forget about uh, the reflation. Let's think about uh, you know the reopening and the and the new normal. I'm thinking a lot along the the, the side uh, lines of Ed, uh, but just to throw something out there at the end. Uh, Perhaps to the, the viewer, the curious viewer, the ambitious viewer, look up the implied volatility of options for uh, ARK, uh, the, the main fund, ARKK, and then look up the implied volatility for the constituents of the fund. You'll find that ARKK implied volatility is actually much lower, um, despite the fact that the, the, the stocks all sort of trade in a bit. And I think that's the reasoning for that is, oh, it's diversified in the same way that, sure, we've got a CEO that has these really toxic loans in them, but they're diversified. Um, so I'm seeing a little parallel there. Of course, uh, a tremendous amount of respect for, for Kathy Wood. I just think that growth stocks are going to have a, a hard uh, couple of months, if not year, going ahead. Yeah. And when you're done looking up volatility spreads, pour yourself a cocktail. It's Friday night. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Jack and Ed. Thanks for watching, everyone.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.